Good morning, and welcome again to Redeemer Online. I'm Pastor Thea, and I'm thankful that we have this opportunity to connect and worship and word this way, in this unique way, amidst these unique days. Uh, This morning, we're kicking off a brand new sermon series, Summer on the Mount, where we're going to spend several weeks in the words of Jesus and the words that Jesus teaches and preaches that really are designed to help us understand how are we to live this Christian life? How are we actually to live that out? And in this series, we're going to have some real important themes to talk about, like forgiveness and judgment and righteousness and how to give and how to pray. And so I'm really looking forward to this series I'm looking forward to digging in deep to the Word of God and and learning from these teachings that Jesus has for us. And I hope that you are looking forward to that too. And I hope that you will plan to join us and be a part of that, however you feel most safe with that opportunity. Today we're going to begin in chapter 5 of the book of Matthew, verses 1 through 11. And we're going to look at how these beginning words of Jesus' famous sermon um, really teach us some things about our relationship our realities, and our redemption. But before we go any further, I want to invite you to pray with me. Gracious and good, good God, what an honor it is that you would be a God willing to be known by us, willing to extend yourself into our lives in a way that we can really know you. And in that extension, an invitation is an opportunity to be known by you. Gracious Lord, as we come this morning with our hearts heavy and our minds confused, we seek you for your word, your direction, your clarity. We seek you to lead us in all of our days and in all of our ways. And God, I pray that we would have the willingness and the courage to follow where it is you lead. God, you are our rock and our redeemer. And it's in your great name we pray. Amen. So we're going to start today in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 11. Let's go ahead and jump in and read it. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And I think it's real important that we begin this conversation with deciphering who Jesus is speaking to. 
Who are these words originally designed for? Who were they originally spoken to? And one way we can read the text is that there were crowds of people. And so Jesus kind of took a seat up on a mountainside so that he could be elevated above them. They could hear him better. And then he called his disciples and they kind of took a front row seat. And then Jesus taught and spoke to all of them, the crowds and the disciples. And, and maybe that's what happened. And maybe there were crowds of people. And so Jesus went away to a mountainside as he tends to do. And in that, he called his disciples to him and talked to them a little more privately amidst all the crowds around them. And what leads me to consider that option is what happens just before these words at the end of chapter 4 in the book of Matthew. You see, we're in the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. He has just, just called these disciples to come and follow him. They have just left their nets and followed, and immediately crowds start to gather around this Jesus. We read in Matthew 4, 23-25, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases. Those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. And so when I think about these crowds that are gathering around Jesus and these young disciples who have just decided to follow, I imagine it was pretty intense I mean, these, these guys were fishermen. They were not known. They were not adored. They didn't have fans flocking to them. And all of a sudden, as they start to follow these, this Jesus, and he starts doing his Jesus things, these people show up, crowds of them. And then Jesus is doing these wondrous things, these miracles of healing, and the crowds grow, and more and more people are following them. I imagine it's kind of like that scene in Forrest Gump where um, there's all these people just surrounding him, right? And, and that's what it's like for Jesus and the disciples as these crowds are growing. And I, I think as that fandom is growing, there's an important conversation Jesus wants to have with his disciples. And so I could see where he might need to pull them away from those crowds and speak directly to them. And basically he needs to define the relationship. This is a phrase I get from Kyle Eidelman's book, Not a Fan. And I've spoken about this book before because it has been truly transformative in my faith journey. And in this book, Kyle describes that there are plenty of people who are fans of Jesus. And he really describes them as enthusiastic admirers, right? A fan is like the guy who's at the football game every week, on the front row with his face and his chest painted and he's got a big old sign. He is super excited about this team. And when he leaves the game, he gets in his car that has a bumper sticker and a license plate decal and a flag that he flies on game days. 
And this team is something he's excited about. But this fan is never actually in the game. This fan is not invested. This, this fan actually is not changed in any way, whether the team wins or loses. And as these crowds are growing around Jesus, I think it would have been important for Jesus to sit down with those disciples and start to define that relationship he's invited them into. And we see this relational language also when Jesus describes the blessed. He says they'll see the face of God. They'll inherit God's kingdom and be called children of God. Jesus has invited these disciples into an intimate, up-close, real relationship, but not one that they can simply be on the sidelines for. They haven't just been invited for a front row seat. They've been invited to be a part of this work that Jesus is doing. Because you see, this teaching and preaching and healing that Jesus has, we know later he will ask these disciples to do these very things. They don't just get to see it, they get to live it. And they're invited to do this work that Jesus is doing. And I think this is an important topic because Kyle mentions in his book, the biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything from them. And I can't help but think about how COVID-19 spreads. You know, we, I saw a, a something this week about a woman in a restaurant sharing it with up to fifth, uh, nine people up to 15 feet away and how COVID has spread through these close interactions. And interestingly, it's, it's spread the way the gospel is designed to be spread. Through one-on-one, through close-up interactions, through, through real-life connection, and as I thought about that reality, I started to wonder, what is my gospel infection rate? How many people have I infected with this Jesus I claim to be following with my whole life? What droplets of goodness have I shared with those around me? Who is being infected by this Jesus that I try and leave my life behind. Hopefully it's my family. Hopefully it's my friends. But I began to wonder about, as I'm concerned about the germs I'm sharing, what kind of gospel I'm sharing and where and who might that be affecting. Once Jesus has this reality kind of, this relationship discussed, I think he moves into reality. I think he starts to talk about some of the truths that he sees amongst his disciples and amongst the crowds. Jesus says, blessed are the poor, blessed those who mourn, blessed those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what I think Jesus is saying here about these, these key pieces of suffering and experience of the people around him is that I see you. I see you. 
I see your suffering. I see your pain. I see your longing. I see you. And this word poor, for instance, is one that uh, probably means something a little different to us today than it might have meant to uh, the original audience, right? Because things have changed, things have grown. Today, when we think about the word poor, we might think about someone um, just without a lot of financial means, maybe even just someone with a couple of months of bad luck, right? This, someone who, who, we, who we might uh, think of when we think of the word poor today might be someone who has to ask for help. Maybe they have to ask for government assistance of some sort. Maybe they have to visit a charity and ask for food or even ask for a place to stay. And while those are real realities that uh, exist today for those who are poor in our communities, this word poor in Jesus' time would have meant a little something more. Because in that time, there are no agencies, there are no organizations, there are no people catching those who might fall beneath the cracks. You see, those who are poor in the times of Jesus are also without a voice, without power. These, these people are often pushed to the far, far furthest parts of society that they may barely even be seen. And so for Jesus to speak of these realities, he's saying, I see you. I see you. And amongst the realities that we are facing today, this week, the experiences and the things that are happening in Minneapolis, the fact that COVID has an infection rate that's much higher for minorities that doesn't match their population distribution, or the fact that when we were all asked to stay home a few months ago, there are tons of people right here in our community that have no home to stay in, and much less tons of children whose homes were not the safest place for them to be. As Jesus speaks to the realities that the people he is preaching to are facing, we are also called to speak to the realities that we see around us today. These realities are real and they're here and we have to be willing to see them. I listen to a podcast often called uh, Another Name for Everything and it's hosted by Richard Rohr and the Center for Contemplative Thinking and Prayer some other really fancy kind of name like that. Um, and he says something once that really kind of sticks out to me in this time. And he said, if it's true, it isn't new. And what he's alluding to there is this idea that if something is really true, if it's, if it's really true and fully true, then it's, it would have always been true. It would have always been this, this truth that we could hold to. And he kind of expands on that in the light of COVID-19 when he says, one of the most distressing things to me about the COVID-19 outbreak has been a feeling that things should not be this way. In reality, though, things are and always have been this way. The suffering caused by illness and death is nothing new. The suffering caused by inhumanity and inequality and injustice is nothing new. And as Jesus speaks to those realities, we too are called to think about and to speak about these realities amongst us. And I get that pondering these realities 
seeing them and speaking about them and thinking about the truths that lie amongst us can be really overwhelming. It can be depressing. It can be hard to function when we actually see the truths around us. It can be hard to live into this reality. I mean, what are we to do when we actually see the evil and injustice and humanity that is around us? That is a hard truth to actually see, much less speak to. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. So just as Jesus sees these travesties, Jesus also sees the goodness, the mercy, the pureness, and the peace that is also prevalent around us. And we are also called amidst seeing all of the harsh realities is to see the good realities, the truth and the power of God, the opportunity and the hope of a risen Savior and what that brings, and to live and to speak about that reality just as much as we are more so than we are willing to speak about the harsh. Because friends, that's the redemption that Jesus offers that amidst these really, really harsh realities, there is redemption. Each harsh reality Jesus speaks to is resolved. It's reversed. It's redeemed. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. Those who are in need and without will be given those who are pushed to the side, those who fight and strive for goodness and justice will be fulfilled. Those who, who want and pray and are willing to move for what is right will be satisfied. Jesus affirms that there is redemption in store for every single bit of our suffering. And Jesus sa says this in a way that proves that God is on our side that God is fighting for us and God is willing to intercede for us on our behalf in the midst of all of the suffering that we might encounter. I read a story this past week about the miracle of Dunkirk, which happened in World War II, and you might be familiar with it. What I remember from the story was that seemingly Great Britain is up against a wall. They are outnumbered and outwitted, and they are sure to lose over 300,000 men in a battle with Germany that they just can't even seem to figure out how to get out of, much less try and claim victory. And in this situation, the leader of the country decides to call on his last strategy, the last thing he could think of, which was a national day of prayer. And what happens is that hundreds, if not thousands, of British people stand in line for hours to get into churches and to get into cathedrals, to, to fall on their knees and pray out to God, help us, help us in our despair, help us amidst the, the, our confusion, help us amidst our fear and our worry. God, please, won't you help us? And what can only be described as a miracle 
is a storm comes in, un unprecedented, unplanned, unforecast, and Germany stops their troops for three whole days, which still few people can explain. And in that time, the British troops are able to escape and to retreat and save the lives of over 100,000 men. And that small victory gives them the momentum to eventually overcome the German and Nazi regime. Now, would the outcome have been the same without the prayer? Well, we don't know. But what we do know is what happened with the prayer. We know what happened when thousands of people were willing to call out to God to intercede on their behalf. And we see this over and over in scripture and in our own experiences that when we are willing to invite God into our situations, invite God and allow God to be present with us in the midst of our pain and our confusion and our fear and feelings of being so overwhelmed, that God shows up and God shows up big. God is so willing to be with us in all that we're experiencing and brings God's glory and power too. And I think this idea of with is really key. Every experience that Jesus describes in these beginning words, the poor, the mourning, the meek, the hungry, the thirsty, these are experiences that Jesus has. And it reminds me of the beauty of incarnation. God willing not just to come and put on some flesh and hang out, but God to be with us in all of our experiences, to have the full human experience right along with us, simply to be with us. Yesterday, I had to do something hard. It was a little thing, but I was having some big emotions about it, and I had some big feelings about it. And in the middle of my big feelings, a friend just showed up. She just surprised me. And in the middle of my big feelings, she was simply with me. She didn't try and change the way I was feeling. She didn't try and tell me it was going to be okay. She didn't even try to offer her own experience that was kind of similar in how she got out of it. In the end, she was just with me in that experience. And as I drove home, I just thought about how that is really the love of God, the love of Christ to be with us in all that we might experience. And Jesus does more than simply experience the meekness and the hunger and the thirst. As Jesus assures, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. These realities too, insulted, accused, persecuted, are not just warnings of what the disciples will experience, but these are experiences that Jesus will have too. Jesus will have these experiences right with us. Friends, that's the beauty and the glory and the goodness and the story of the cross. That God is willing to suffer right with us in the deepest, 
darkest parts of our suffering and our deepest, hardest, most, most biggest feelings of despair, when we cry out, no, how, why, where are you, God? Why, oh, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is there in that suffering with us, willing to be on a cross and die to be with us in all suffering that we would ever encounter, even the suffering of death here on this earth. And friends, we cannot forget the glory of Sunday morning that says that in all that suffering that Jesus is willing to do with us, that is not the end. That is not over. That is not the end game. That's not the complete story. No, Jesus gets up out of that grave and says, even that deepest, darkest suffering, even the hardest things of this life that we feel are, are all that we could ever experience, there is something more. There is a bigger glory and a better future and a bigger tomorrow than we could ever imagine. It's an eternal glory that starts now and lasts for that eternity. And friends, as we are living in this time where there is suffering and death and confusion and despair, I pray, I pray with all I have that we could hold on to this truth, that we could live out this truth in a real way to all of those around us, that this life is not it. What this world has to offer is not the end, that there is a glorious redemption to be had now and for all eternity through Jesus Christ. And friends, that's truth is the only reason we can call ourselves blessed. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are always good. You have always been good. You will always be good. And Lord, though we find ourselves in despair, we find ourselves in suffering and in humanity and in justice, you are with us and you bring us of a promise of greater glory to be had both now and forever. And God is in this truth that we cling to, that we hold to, that we, that we sing of and that we pray of, Lord, and that we would let lead our lives in every way. It's in your gracious name. Amen.